If you have your Bibles, go with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 3 to 8. This is going to be our text for today, and then we're going to kind of launch off from here. This is Paul writing, and he says this, for this is God's will. Come on, how many of you have ever at one point or another wanted to know what God's will is for your life? Come on, show of hands, like it's just an open moment, no trick question. Most of us do. We have a tendency to view the will of God as this big grandiose thing, right? And we say, I want to know the will of God. It's like, what college should I go to? Who should I marry? Should I take this job position? Should I invest here? Should I do this? Should I do that? These kind of big deal, big ticket items. But Paul's going to kind of dial it back a little bit and help us understand that God's will is not only um, uh, mega, big, but it's also minute. It's small. God's will has to do with both the big parts of our life and the small parts of our life. And so, so he says, this is God's will, your sanctification. Big bible word for day in, day out, God's grace working in your life. That's what sanctification means. Big theological term for God's grace working in our lives daily. All right? That you keep away from sexual immorality. That each of you knows how to control his own body in holiness and honor. And just so you know, I didn't say this in the first service, but I want to clarify this now. When it says control his own body, this is a general conversation going to both sexes in the room today, all right? It's not just like a conversation for dudes, okay? So it, it, it's our bodies. That's, that's the word that's being used here. So control his body in holiness and honor, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't know God. This means one must not transgress against Another, against and take advantage of a brother or a sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all of these offenses. As we also previously told and warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but to live lives in holiness. Consequently, anyone who rejects this does not reject man, but God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Today as we continue on in our series, hashtag all the feels, I want to speak to you from the subject, hashtag the one ring to rule them all. As we deal with the issue of sex, sexuality, the will of God, and purity, would you pray with me just one more time today? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive and it's active, that it's powerful, that it has the ability to transform us from the inside out. God, right now I ask that you would soften our hearts, that you would open our minds. God, I know in a moment like this, every single one of us comes to the table with different thoughts and different feelings and different emotions. God, we come to the table with baggage and pasts, ideologies, preferences, preconceived notions and ideas when it comes to a subject like this. And so, God, right now, I pray that as we navigate your word, you would help us see you in it. God, I pray that these wouldn't be my words, that they would be your words. May we approach the subject of sex and sexuality with the understanding that you are for us and not against us knowing that your grace has the ability to saturate every single moment in our life. And God, for those of us who are struggling with this subject matter today, those of us who are gazing upon our pasts and understand different decisions that we've made, God, I pray right now against the enemy who would love to level shame against us right now. And I pray grace. I pray freedom. I declare hope over this church this morning. God, we love you, and we worship you, and we stand here in awe and amazement of who you are in our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, come on, and everybody shouted, 
Amen. This is not a trick question, and I know whenever I ask you to raise your hand in a message like this, everyone's like, nope, not raising my hand. Not at all. How many of you have seen the movie Lord of the Rings, the trilogy Lord of the Rings? Most of us in here, it's, a, it's an amazing movie. Um, every single, not every single year, but a lot, Eric and I like to work through the trilogy again. It's a fun trilogy to go through. Uh, Pastor Justin likes to do the extended version trilogy all within a day. Um, I'm still trying to figure out how he has that time, so we're starting to load more on his plate. Um, so, <laughs> but, uh, so he loves to do the extended version, has friends, and, and, and I love the movie. So I was watching it a little while ago, and uh, I was thinking about it as I was watching the movie, and you guys know the premise of the movie, this ring comes out into, into play, and it's the one ring to rule them out all. It's this ring with this gross amount of, of power that affects and changes everybody's life. And those who hold on to this ring, eventually their character changes, eventually their personality changes, the way that they do life changes. And it was interesting as I was sitting there thinking about this movie, that sex and sexuality seems to be the one ring that rules them all in our generation. Right? And for many of us, it literally, ha- we've be- we become like Gollum. It's my precious, right? Like that's how we become with this subject matter. And, and my hope today is that as we deal with sex and sexuality, that we will find a degree of freedom in understanding how God sees it, how the Bible narrates it for us. Because here's the deal, it is everywhere we turn. It's everywhere we look and it saturates our conversations and our entertainment. It is whether we like it or not, the fabric of the world that we live in. And I'm not surprised by this, as it seems to be the very thing that the enemy has chosen to use to attack us from the beginning of time. Now I will say this, out the gate, I know that a subject like this is hard for us in church. Many of us coming this morning hoping to receive an encouraging word and, and leave, and all of a sudden the pastor stands up and says, we're talking about sex and sexuality, and you're like, yay. <laughs> right? So to break the ice, everybody turn to your neighbor and say, I'm just kidding, we're not going to do that. <laughs> that gets weird <laughs> really quick. <laughs> but here's the truth. We all come from different places and spaces when it comes to this. Some of us sitting in here today um, might even be a little bit offended at the fact that I'm bringing up this subject matter in church. But here's the deal. God is not silent on this issue within his word, so we shall not be silent on this issue and his word. And here's one thing that I've, I've declared at the beginning of my ministry life. I said, God, I will never shy away from hard subjects. I will never shy away from tackling the things that we need to tackle. I've got three kiddos. I have a young boy in my home and two young girls. And while the subject matter scares me to death in order to deal with it, with them, I understand they're growing up in the world that we live in. And so what I want to make sure that we do is that we frame the narrative in a God-saturated, grace-prevalent way. And so I want to do that with our church as well as we deal with the issue of sex and, and sexuality. And the truth is, sex and purity and sexuality are subjects that we simply don't deal with as much as we should. And I think in the spectrum of topics that we should deal with, sex, money, purity, and power are things that we leave off the list. But have you ever noticed that the things that affect us the most? Maybe it's because of our pasts, our upbringing, our preconceived ideas and notions, maybe our personalities. Maybe we call ourselves conservatives or our beliefs as a whole, and so the subject matter is difficult. Somewhere along the way, we've relegated the topic of sex and purity to the back corridors of our faith, only to be talked about when absolutely necessary, and that's only usually when something bad has happened. 
So then we've attached this title to sex and sexuality, bad. And concerning the church, sex and purity, there are a lot of different issues impacting how we deal with it and the reasons that it's been dealt with the way that it has been. And the biggest one is this, shame. We don't deal with it because there's so much shame attached to it, and it's easier not to deal with it, all right? We've made sex shameful, and we've made ourselves shameful, and we've struggled to reconcile the idea that God is the author of the thing that we deem shameful and bad. But not only is he the author of it, he declared it as what? Good. So let me say this. It's the first point this morning. If you're taking notes, sex is good. (laughs) All right? There is an entire book dedicated to it. But the only reason that we can deem it as good is when it's in its right context. Because context is everything. Context is how we work with it. Because here's the reality is that so many times we attach, unfortunately, moral fiber to this issue. And I want to let you know, because this may ruffle some feathers when I say this right now, but I want you to understand something. Sex has no moral value whatsoever. It only gains moral value when people who are moral and or immoral use it for something. That's when it becomes what it is. But it has no moral value. Paul would write to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10. He says this, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, and by craving it some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice that he did not write money is the root. He said what? The love of money is the root. And this goes back to a general principle that we can apply to everything. It's, it, it's not the thing that's bad or good. It's how we use it that it becomes bad or good. It's getting quiet in this church this morning. <laughs> Everybody's like, I don't know when I should say amen. <laughs> this goes back to what we discussed a little bit last week, this issue of idolatry. Taking something and assessing worship, love, and adoration of it greater than we do God. And this is what we've done with sex, sexuality, and in doing so, we've abdicated from the will of God in our lives, purity, his desire for us to be pure. And here's the problem, is the statistics don't lie. Now, in every argument that I like to kind of create when I'm speaking a message like this, I try to stay away from faith-based statistics, because I want us to see that it's not just faith people who are dealing, who are grappling with these issues, but the statistics are the statistics, it's math. There's a new organization out right now called Fight the New Drug. It's a nonprofit organization that's trying to shed light on the issues of pornography and trafficking and everything like that. And so the statistics don't lie. So these statistics I'm about to read is from their website, Fight the New Drug, and all of these statistics were gathered from groups like Huffington Post, uh, Webroot, uh, NBC News, all kinds of different news sources, and I want you to hear some of these so you'll hear the gravity of the problem that we are facing in the world. Now their, their exact goal is to take down pornography. That's what Fight the New Drug is about. So these statistics, I think, they'll speak to a bigger issue of what we're dealing with, and that is we've taken sex and we've put it way up here, and we've made it something that it's never meant to be. It's become the one ring to rule them all. It's become our precious. 
and it's dangerous. So here are some staggering statistics that we need to hear. Twitter is home to an estimated 10 million porn accounts. Porn sites received more regular traffic than Netflix, Amazon, and Twitter combined each month. 35% of all downloads on the internet, 35% are porn-related. People who admit to having extramarital affairs were over 300% more likely to admit consuming porn than those who have never had an affair, according to a 2004 study. You need to hear this one because this one will just break your heart. The most common female role in porn is women in their 20s portraying teenagers. The fastest growing online business in our day right now is child sex exploitation, child pornography. 624,000 child porn traders have been discovered online in the U.S. alone. In 2016, more than five, well, more than four, almost five trillion hours of porn was consumed on the world's largest porn site. One site. And now, porn is global, estimated to be a $97 billion industry. The statistics don't lie. We've taken sex, we've taken sexuality, and we've put it somewhere where it's never meant to be. So then Paul inserts probably one of the most powerful sentences in the Bible concerning the will of God, as we just read today, which is hard for us to grapple with because here's the deal. If this is the world, if these statistics represent the world that we live in, how in the crazy Paul do you expect me to live a pure life? Can we be honest in church today? Can we talk about some things that's, that's difficult in church today? Because I don't know about you, but this isn't everybody issue. This is not a single issue. This is not a married issue. This is not a woman issue. This is not a man issue. This is, an a, this is an everybody issue. I have to grapple with and struggle through the reality of living pure in a world that is filled with what we see. We all have to work through it. And here's the problem. The reason that we get so frustrated with subject matter like this is because purity is hard. Isn't it? We start to feel like we've got to walk around like this all the time, or we just have to assimilate it, and it is what it is, and deal with it. And then you come to church on a Sunday morning, and there's the pastor in his little V-neck teaching us how to be purity. We can't desire the will of God and then not desire the will of God at the same time. Author of the New American Commentary says something so powerful about the will of God and our desire when he writes this. He says, I sometimes wonder why people would seek the will of God at a pivotal moment in life if they have been ignoring God's will in their daily lives. It doesn't, it doesn't work, so we've got to go through it. So what's purity? Let's talk about that for a second. What's purity? I love this idea. It is simplicity of holy motive followed out in consistency of holy action. It means that I'm, I'm allowing God to work out in me my motive for doing things, and then once the motive is established, then I work out trying to walk that motive out daily. This is, this is normal life. We have motives, and then we walk out through our motives, and this is what purity is. The word for purity, hagania, moral cleanliness, 
is used only here in 1 Timothy 5 to the best definition that I've heard was by a pastor in Seattle, Washington named Judah Smith, and he defined purity as this, man without mixture. I love that. Man without mixture, the state of being without mixture. The problem that we face concerning the issue of purity is that we've leveled it out to basic behavior modification, a list of do's and don'ts. And the problem with that is that purity is so much more than our do's and don'ts. All right? It's about holy motive. It's about what drives you, defines you, and ultimately it's about who leads you. So like I said, it's not a single thing. It's not a young person thing. It's not a man thing or a woman thing. It is an everybody thing, but it's hard. So what I want to do for the remainder of our time together this morning is I want to take a look at some reasons why our purity doesn't work in order for us to work it. Can we do that today? All right, so we're going to look at why our purity doesn't work in order to understand how to work it. Because I think when we understand why things don't work, it helps us navigate how to work it a little bit better. All right? So the first one is this. Everybody shot number one? The first reason our purity doesn't work is because we see a destination and not a decision. We see a destination and not a decision. Philippians chapter 2, 12 through 13, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Notice he says, work it out. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to his good purpose. In other words, what we're being told by Paul is that we've got to work with God's will. So God establishes a will, we just got to work with him. And his will, as we read at the beginning of this whole thing, is that we would live pure lives, that we would experience sanctification, his grace applied daily, every single day. We just got to work it out. We got to work with him. And the reason that we struggle is because we simply see a destination, not a decision. See, holiness is a work of gradual development that is based upon intentional decision. Every single day, waking up and deciding today, I'm going to be a man or a woman of purity. The problem is that so many of us see a point, not a process. We think that it magically comes together one day, don't we? Right, if I just go to church every single Sunday, and I sing the worship song every single Sunday, and if I do these things, then it's all going to come together, and I'm going to be super Christian. The problem is, is it doesn't work. Because instead of making a decision, we just see a destination. We see this place that we all arrive. But come on, can we have some honesty in the room today? You never arrive. Right? Do I got any golfers in here? Golfers, come on, show of hands. It's not a trick question, I promise. Golfers, all right. I love golf. It's all the holy people in the room. Um, so I love golf. And if you've ever played golf before, it's the one sport where you pay to be frustrated, okay? But I love it. It's a sport my dad taught us how to play. And so I've been playing golf for a while. And I'm not that good yet. I've been playing for a really long time. I've actually been playing for 20 years. And I'm still not that good. Like, be, like breaking 90 is really hard for me. And if you don't know what that is, I know I'm speaking gibberish right now. But the rest of you understand, right? So getting, like, it, it's a frustrating sport for me. But I love it. I keep on going back to it. Inevitably, when I'm in a round of golf with somebody, playing with buddies or whatever, I have that hole where everything goes awesome. You know what I'm talking about? It's the one where you walk up and you drive that ball and you hit it 595 yards, which is impossible for a human to do, but it still feels like that. 
then you're out in the middle of the fairway and the grass is just right, everything is just beautiful and you walk up with the iron, it just feels good and you, you waggle it out and then boom, boom, and it just, it's this crisp, clean hit and it sails to the green and lands and as it lands, it gives you a smiley face and says, I'm for you, Jason. And now just feet from the hole, you stroll up to it with so much confidence and so much understanding that, man, I'm going to drain this, and you step up to it. And as you swing, everything goes in slow motion, and Tiger's in the background applauding you already. And you hit the putt, and it just goes, and it turns beautifully, and it's like this just beautiful dance between green and ball, green and ball, green and ball. And the ball drops, and you hear the and at that point, the whole golf course goes silent and plods the greatness of you. It's the perfect hole. It's the birdie that you've been searching for. And so with that same confidence, you walk to the next hole knowing, I'm going to do this again. And you walk up to the ball, and you hit that ball, and that ball shanks the other direction, goes through somebody's window, kills them, and you're in prison. <laughs> <laughs> and it's funny, it happens on the golf course, but have you ever shanked life before? <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about? Here's the point why, because as quickly as you find it, you lose it. And when we see purity as a destination, as quickly as we believe that we found it, we lose it. Purity has to be a daily decision because when we step back and believe, I've arrived, oh, that's when the enemy comes in like a freight train. It's like, you've arrived? Well, how about this, 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 and this? And you're like, ah! Because here's the point that we need to understand is that purity is a destination, not a decision. when temptation comes on so hard. It's when you think that what you had beat beats you. It's when that guy who was in your past that you thought you got rid of is back. <laughs> and he looks so good. <laughs> it's when that office relationship that you know is probably pushing the line, gets a little too close. It's when the stress is so thick, the only thing you know how to do is turn on the computer because it's just a moment. It's not a destination we arrive at. Purity is a decision that we have to make every single day. Day. James 1, 14 through 16 says this, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away by what? His own desire. Right? And then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Sex and sexuality is the strongest desire that you and I as humans face. It's because we've been created with it. And that's what's so difficult, because it's like, mm, God, could you just... just Strip it away. We'll talk about that in a second. So we've got to understand today that purity, if we want to live lives of purity, we want to be pure people, not perfect people. Purity and perfection are totally different. 
Purity and perfection are way, way different. If we want to be pure people, we've got to see that purity is a destination. It, it's not a destination. It's a decision that we make every single day. Come on, Rashad, number two. The second thing is this. One of the reasons that our, our purity doesn't work is that we believe we can delete desire. Right? Now, we did a message series on James, the book of James. James is hardcore. Like, he just says it the way that it is. Like, A-type personality. Here's what you need to know. Deal with it. Right? That's, that's James. <laughs> that's how he says it. He's a two-by-four writer. He writes in, in his letter, chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, he says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that, that wage war within you? You ever felt like that before? You ever felt like bombs are going off and stuff is happening on the inside? And then, then he says this, why? Because you desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask and you do not ask. And you, you, you excuse me, you ask and don't receive because you ask with what? Wrong motives that you may spend it on your pleasure. See, the goal isn't to delete desire. The goal is to direct desire. Because desire is, is in us. It's there. It's always going to be there. The Bible would clarify for us that as men who are married, my desire should be for my wife, and my wife's desire should be for me. And I pray that all the days of our life that it is but the thing is, is that so many of us arrive to the table of faith and we believe that it's God's job to strip us of our humanity when he never said that he would strip us of our humanity. He simply said, I'll walk with you in your humanity and you can lean on me, you can rely on me, you can be with me in the midst of your humanity doing what your humanity does. But so many of us are like, God, just take it all away. Strip me of all feeling, all desire. Take it all away. But he doesn't do that because he doesn't take away our desire. Why? Because desire is necessary to help us understand what's going on inside. Writer Tony Reinke put it this way. He says, our passions expose our internal trajectory. Jesus wants to help us redirect our desires. What they say to Spider-Man, with great power, <laughs> comes great responsibility, right? All we're simply trying to say is that Jesus wants to redirect. He knows, he's, I know what I put in me. I know what's there, right? You just got to direct it appropriately. I love working with pre-marriage counseling. I love doing it. It's so much fun when these, this young couple, just butterflies, right? He walks in like thumper, just... How many of you have seen Bambi before? <laughs> and they have all this pent up like aggression and they're like, we just want to get married. We just want to get married. <laughs> Shaking. And you quickly got to pop their bubble because you say marriage doesn't take away your desire. Can I say this? Marriage doesn't fulfill your desire either. And that's the false teaching that we've created, especially within the faith community, is that we say, well, once you get married, it'll take away your desire. Nope. And then the married couples who are struggling with desire issues go, what happened? And the church stays quiet on it because we don't want to offend anybody by talking about this subject matter. 
yet people's lives are being ruined because the subject matter is not being brought out to the light. And here's what I've discovered. Bad things dwell in the darkness, so let's shine light on it. Where the light of God's word shines upon these subjects, then we have the ability to negotiate it a little bit better. What would happen if this subject matter became something that we could actually talk about? What happens if we could do what the Bible describes and says, listen, talk about what's going on in you in places of freedom where you can get help and grace and hope so that the noose of condemnation doesn't hang around your neck because Jesus is the one who sets us free and where grace is applied, we can actually walk into the grand future that he has for us, so let's not let it be the one ring that rules them all. We've got a bunch of Christians running around like Gollum. We're like, what's wrong with you? Because I'm like, ratchet. One of the reasons our purity doesn't work is that we believe that we can delete desire. And when we believe that we delete desire, it puts us in a vulnerable state because we believe that we are impervious then to that desire. So when it rears its head, we are hit like a freight train that we did not see coming. And here's the truth, that if you don't hear anything else this morning, I want you to hear this. We tend to overlook what we underestimate. And when we underestimate, we find ourselves overcome. And then we say things like this, I didn't see it coming. Right? I, I didn't see it coming. I've walked through affairs with people. I've walked through all kinds of different mo- moments with young adults, adults, singles, students. And the same thing that they say over and over and over and over again is I didn't see it coming. And that's because we have a tendency to underestimate the power of our desire. So then what do we do? How do we, how do we mess with it? Well, then we attach words like bad to it. And bad equals shame. And so then we have an entire generation of people thinking that sex and sexuality is bad. Well, God didn't make it bad. He made it beautiful in the right context. In the right context. We've got to contend for purity, church. We've got to contend to be people who live lives according to God's design. But we can't be sidelined in our faith when we believe that desire can be deleted. He doesn't delete your desires. Students, hear me today. He didn't delete your desire. So you've got to be careful on the snappy chat and the face Twitter and all the other stuff that you're on. the Instapin and all the other things that are there that are there. <laughs> you gotta be careful. And what I don't want to do as your guys' pastor is I want to say be careful because it's bad. We're gonna teach our kids. I'm not ever gonna teach our kids be careful because it's bad. Because then that all of a sudden shame's created because they're like, but but what you tell me is bad, I want. Do you see how shame comes into play? And we've had entire generations of Christians in church being told that it's bad, but then we don't know what to do when we desire it. It's not bad, the reason you desire it is because it's good. It's in the wrong contest that makes it harmful. Not bad, 
it makes it harmful. It becomes a weapon. And it becomes our slave master. It becomes this thing that controls us. It is the one ring to rule them all. Desire is in you. But God's given us the ability to navigate that desire appropriately in the right context. Number three, come on everybody shout number three. This is the last one. You getting something out of this this morning, church? Number three, if the reason our purity doesn't work is that we disregard God's design for the world's default. We disregard God's design for the world's default. Did you know that God has a design for everything? Everything. From the beginning of time, he designed it. Now, we're talking about the one who authored the stars. We're talking about the one, but with a breath, stars. And he separated the, the waters from the land. He makes the earth revolve in the way that it does in the solar system that we're in. And while many of our minds cannot compute this reality and we struggle with it, we got to understand that since the beginning of the time, God has been designing things and putting it into motion. And our lives have a design. So then Paul writes something in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It's a piece of scripture that is really hard to, to struggle with, and I've read it so many times, and I hate this piece of scripture, to be honest. And I wrestled with even reading it because it's like, man, we read things like this, we're like, oh man, like, oh, I don't want to offend anybody. But here's the cool thing Erica's going to be talking about offense in a couple weeks. So hold on to your offense and then bring it up then, okay? So. Here we go, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25 says this. It says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness, of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. You ever notice we live in a generation that suppresses truth? Since what could be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. Have you ever sat out at 9,500 feet, 10,000 feet in the high Uintas and gazed into the sky just to go, wow, there's so much more going on here. It's impossible to stand in the nature that is around us and see anything other than a creative hand at work with the brushstrokes of heaven making a beautiful creation for us to enjoy. So Paul says, you, we, we, we're without here. Because there's just no possible way that you can stand at, at the foot of these mountains at 5.30 in the morning as the sun rises going, he made all this. And then he says, this as a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. So therefore, God didn't have any other option. He said, listen, I'm delivering them over to the desires of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served what has been created instead of the creator who, pra who is praised forever. Amen. 
Listen to the gravity and the weight of that scripture. Notice he didn't throw anything else in there. He didn't say murder. He didn't say greed. He didn't say any of these other things. He said that just let him go to the place, to the one thing that ruled them all, sexual impurity. The word that they use, the Greek word, is the word pornea. That speaks more than just about pornography. It's a blanket umbrella statement for all sex and desire outside of God's expressed design for our lives. And I know that hurts. And the reason it hurts is not because we're mad at God. If we're honest, the reason it hurts is because we're upset at ourselves. Now, before we end today, I do not preach this message from a pulpit of perfection. Because I'll tell you what, I'm a man. The title pastor does nothing for me. I'm a Christ follower. That's it. I'm no different than Jason, except we have the same name, so that was a hard one to throw out there. <laughs> I'm no different than any of us. So I preach this message as if I'm sitting right here, listening. Because I want to contend for purity in my life as well. Because I have the same temptations. I have the same computers. I live in the same city. I go to the gym. <laughs> Some of you know what I'm talking about. I need like a metal helmet in there with nothing to see out of. <laughs> and I think so often we set the narrative of this conversation with, oh, that's the pastor talking about perfection. And he's the only one who can do it. Can I tell you? Uh-uh. Because i got to contend with this every single day of my life. That's why my, my wife, she has all the codes to all my stuff. All my things. She can get into it. She can see. And how many of you know, if she reaches for my phone, or my kids reach for my phone, and I'm like, ah, blah, 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 red flags everywhere. Why? Because we're contending for purity in my house. I don't want my son to get on my stuff and potentially trip because it's something that I decided to do. I want my son to watch his father and say, that was a man of integrity, that is a man of character, that is a man of purpose, and while he may not be perfect, he tried. And so many of us are trying to be perfect that we're not trying at all. We just try. And if you fall, you get back up, why? Because purity it's not something that is broken and never back. It is authored by the one who says, I will wash you white as snow. And some of us need to hear this today because we're contending. And then some of us argue, well, it's not a life of passion. Purity, that just sounds lame. There's no passion in this. And then we say things like, I'll miss out on experiences. No, you won't. Can I just tell, like, it works. That's how it was designed. You're not missing out on experiences. We said that I was never designed to be with just one person. I can't deny how I feel. I shouldn't deny my desire. 
all in the name of being passionate. Here's the truth, though. Discipline is the greatest measure of passion you will ever experience. Why? Because discipline shows how passionate about something you actually are. Purity is not a passionless life. It's the most passionate life that there is. Why? Have you ever watched an elite athlete with no passion? Uh Uh-uh. Why? We watch these elite athletes who discipline their bodies and do the things that they do, and then we call them passionate. They're passionate about their sport. They're passionate. Why? Because they are doing something that no one else will do. They're disciplining themselves in ways that no one else will discipline them. That's not passionless. That's all passion. And you will find that in life, the greatest passion that you will ever live out of, that you will ever exercise, is a life of discipline. You cannot have purity without passion. And passion is what we've been called to live out. And it is my passion for God. It is my passion for my wife. It is my passion for my kids. It is my passion for this church that drives me every single day to live with purity. Don't disregard God's design for the world's default. Understand that in his design is the most beautiful thing that you will ever experience. Singles, I say to you, this isn't just a message about waiting to have sex. That's like a dumb message. Sorry, I got no clean words for that one. (laughs) Why? Because it's so much more than that. I'm not going to teach my kids about waiting to have sex. I'm going to teach them about what God has for them far greater than waiting for sex. I'm going to teach them about what waiting for sex is actually about. Not just abide by this rule. Don't have sex. It'd be an easy message. You guys wouldn't have to be working through the awkward moments of this message. If I just said, okay, guys, message today. Here it is. Don't have sex. And the married people are like, well, cool, I'm, I'm off. Good day. We'll see you later. understanding that God has a greater plan and a greater purpose, a greater destination for you and for me, for the men and the women of this house. What if? What if standing on the corner holding picket signs about child sex slavery isn't what wins over child sex slavery? What if it was people of period who said we're not going to stand for it anymore? What if defeating pornography had nothing to do with what we protest? Here's where it's going to hurt. Well, we just stop doing it. The statistics don't lie. I know that's a hard one. But the very people who protest are the very ones who are supporting it. It's not our protest that wins the day. <laughs> it's our purity protest doesn't do anything, but our purity does everything. So today, church, I hope you hear my heart. I hope that you can leave here today knowing and believing that I've tried to handle this subject matter with as much tact and grace as possible. And I hope today that you would give me the space to have said these things that I've said. And if there's been something that's offended you, that's not been my heart. My heart is to bring freedom. My heart is to bring hope. As I stare at a church, three services large, 
all across the day today, and I know unequivocally and without a shadow of a doubt that we are all dealing with this subject matter. That there are people who are underneath the weight of a slave master. And they want freedom from it. The one ring to rule them all. And so, like every great message, if we end with just a bit of humor, let's go be Frodo. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Come on, would you stand to your feet with me?